At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome into yet another edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. My name is Chris Whittingham, joined as always by Ethan Skolnick. If you want to check out our episode with Will Manso from earlier in the week, it is available on iTunes. If you're on Android, on Google Play, also on the other podcasting apps like Stitcher and Overcast and wherever it is you get your podcasts. Ethan, we've been joined by a motley crew of guests, but I think we have the biggest get that we've gotten so far. Barry Jackson, the Florida Sports Buzz, joining us right now. Appreciate the time, sir. Thanks for doing this. It's good to be with you guys. I can't possibly be the biggest getter even close to it. But thank you for the kind words, Chris. It, it's no, without I, question I, the I, biggest getter. No, I, I think so, actually. I'm, I'm just judging it by level of excitement on our, uh, on our new Twitter feed, at Five Reasons Pod. And when we said that we were going to be buzzing tonight with a sports buzz, uh, it, got, it got quite a reaction. So, I, I mean, you're definitely ahead of Jason Leisure. There's no question about that. <laughs> um, and, and, and probably Chris Perkins, too. You and Windhorse are tight. But I think there was overall more enthusiasm for your appearance. So we're, we're excited about this. Thank you. I'm honored. All right. So what we're going to do today, because Barry Jackson is so good with the notebooks, with the news items, constantly delivering you the latest and greatest information in South Florida sports, we want to kind of run through all the big teams and kind of get your sense, Barry, on what the biggest talking points are and going forward, what are the biggest storylines with each team? So I want to start with the Heat. And here's where I want to begin, because we can do the big picture stuff in the summer. Right now, for me, it's about a team that has a place firmly cemented in the Eastern Conference playoffs, where they end up as the 7 or they end up as the 8. What, for you, are the desirable playoff matchups, and how should they approach these kind of final 11 games that they have left? Well, the ideal thing, of course, would be if Indiana is 4 and Miami is 5. Because even though the Pacers have surpassed expectations all year, and even though everyone keeps waiting for this drop that hasn't happened, clearly from a talent standpoint, if you stack up both of those rosters, that's the one roster of the teams ahead of Miami in the Eastern Conference where you would say Miami should be favored in the series. But at this point, moving to five obviously seems unrealistic. So you're looking at the possibility realistically of getting to seven, You know, where uh, they enter Tuesday night in seventh, ahead of Milwaukee and owning the tiebreaker with the Bucks. So in that scenario, a matchup with Boston, as you guys know, looms as a likely possibility. And I think that is the most enviable matchup for Miami among Boston, Toronto, Cleveland, for a couple of reasons. One, Kyrie Irving's knee injury certainly raises questions. And even though he's not going to be out for an extended period, there has to be concern anytime you're talking about a knee. And the second issue is, even though they've been a very good regular season team, great early on this season, pretty good 
good recently. There's still the issue of that group not having played collectively in postseason together. When Kyrie Irving, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown play their first playoff game together, it's going to be their first playoff game together as a group, unlike the Toronto contingent, which obviously has been a disappointment in postseason, but at least DeRozan and Lowry and that group have postseason experience together. So to me, those who suggest that Boston and Toronto is a wash and that it makes no difference who Miami plays, I don't agree with that. I think Toronto clearly the more difficult matchup. So I would say getting to seventh, which is where the Heat is entering Tuesday night, probably is the best realistic option for them. Now, of course, if they can get on a roll over the final 11 games and move up uh, to five, that would be the best scenario unless unless Cleveland should somehow finish behind Indiana, which would be stunning, but yet that had been the case as recently as the past several days with the Pacers at three and Cleveland at four. So assuming Indiana falls to four, then Miami at five would, I think, be the best possible outcome for them. Yeah, and Barry, when I look at Cleveland right now, I mean, getting Kevin Love back yesterday – as we tape this, it is big because uh, with that roster, when you had Kyrie, it was a little different. But now that you don't have Kyrie, LeBron really needs a second scorer to take some of the burden off of him. So I, I would anticipate that Cleveland gets its act together and finishes third. But I'm with you on the Boston thing. I mean, clearly Indiana is the best matchup. But but beyond that, when you look at Boston's situation right now, the Kyrie Irving thing is is a big concern. I mean, Kyrie sometimes hasn't wanted to pay, play through pain. You know, when I was up there for LeBron's first season back in Cleveland, that was a big issue during the playoffs. There were a lot of guys on that Cleveland team and in that Cleveland organization who wanted Kyrie to toughen up a little bit. And that actually led to what happened in the finals, where he just couldn't go any further after the first game of that finals loss to Golden State. So there is always that question with Kyrie. There's always the question with the knee. And without Hayward there, you know, Kyrie is the, is the guy that makes them special. You talk about Tatum and, and Jalen Brown and the years that they've had, but you're right. I mean, for Tatum, his numbers have trailed off a little bit as the season's progressed, and now they're also dealing with Marcus Smart's absence, and, and he's big for their second unit. So I'm with you. I think, you know, a Heat team facing Boston in the first round would have a chance. My question for you, Barry, though, looking at the Heat, you know, we saw last night that great game against Denver and the double overtime win that James Johnson showed up in that game. With a lot of these guys on this Heat team, I'm just not clear who it's going to be on a given night that's going to play well. And so that presents problems for Spolstra here. Going forward, I guess it's a good problem if you have a lot of different guys, but he's got to make a decision. How do you see the Heat's sort of late game rotation working out here going forward? Well, I think when everyone is healthy, guys, you have to obviously play Wade and I add Olenek to that group only because he's been so good in the fourth quarter this year. Obviously, Josh Richardson as your best wing defender and Goran Dragic. So that would be four that I think would play automatically unless one of them is just having an absolutely awful night or there's foul trouble or, or there's some injury. As far as the fifth goes, I would say Whiteside, when the other team is playing big or on a night that Whiteside is engaged, would still seem to me to be the most logical option. The one variable would be if Ellington is absolutely shooting out out of his mind in a particular night, then, you know, you clearly want him in your lineup late in games. But I would say those six would generally be the most likely you'd want on the floor with Richardson, Gorin, Wade, Olenek, pretty automatic. I think it's difficult to overlook what Olenek has done late in games. He's been a very good fourth-quarter player, obviously going back to that second-round game, seven playoff series for Boston against Washington last year when he was just out of his mind in the fourth quarter. And he's continued that this year. He shot at a high percentage in the fourth. And how about the four blocks from him 
on Monday night. That came out of nowhere. He's actually been a pretty capable team defender here. I remember Riley told us over the summer that they actually thought that he had the potential to be a very good defender here, and he has not been a liability for the most part on that end of, of the court. So I think that's probably the, the way to go. You know, it's interesting about James Johnson. You mentioned him. I've asked him over the course of the year, why haven't we seen the consistently aggressive player that we saw in March and April last year? I said, is the contract uh, creating pressure for you? And he said, it's not the contract. He said he feels added pressure because of the captaincy and having increased responsibility in that regard. And he also said his role had changed, which had, you know, caused some additional stress on him in terms of not being uh, a primary ball handler at times this year, certainly much less than he was last year. So obviously this is the, this is the James Johnson that we saw last night that the Heat would like to bottle and why they gave him a four-year, $60 million contract. Without question, and I think you, you look at the performance he turned in against Denver, it's exactly what you've been looking for. Now, Denver isn't the greatest of defensive teams, and I think we kind of saw what the Heat can be at their max, but that's kind of the, the, the final point I want to hit on with the both of you guys. What for you is the maximum that the Heat can offer in the playoffs because they strike me as very much, given the fact that they don't have a superstar talent, as a regular season kind of team. When it comes playoff time, like you mentioned, Ethan, what, what's their crunch time five going to be? Who's going to be their given performer on your average night? I feel like they scare me as a playoff proposition. What do you make of it, Ethan? Yeah, I, I think what they again, Eric has to settle on which guys he's going to trust the most because I, I don't think they can play you know ten consistently in the playoffs. It's just not the way that it works. I mean, one of the problems that you've typically had in the playoffs with deep teams is that the advantage that you have in the regular season, whereas uh, you know have some back to backs in the regular season and all that, that does and there aren't as many back to backs as there used to be clearly. But you get things are more spaced out in the playoffs. So so having 10, 11 players you can play is not quite as much of an advantage as it would be in the regular season. To me, what's really interesting about this Barry uh, is that there are some matchups for which Whiteside could be really useful in a playoff series and could be the difference because when we talk about what could make this team special, right? You know, I look at Hassan. I mean, if Hassan was playing motivated every night that he was on the court, he gives you things that other teams have difficulty matching up with. I'm not sure that that's the case for at this stage, because we know obviously Dwayne's 36 at this point. It's not really the case for any other heat player, uh, you know, where, where they could, potentially, you know, even Goran, who, you know, I have enormous respect for, I'm not anticipating that he's going to dominate anybody, but Hassan has that capability. If they're going to make a deep playoff run, maybe he's not on the court in the fourth quarter of every game, but he has to be an impact player in the 25 to 27 minutes a game that he plays. Oh, without question. And I asked Hassan after the All-Star break, I said, did you watch the All-Star game? Do you draw any fuel from the fact that Embiid was in the position playing, playing key moments late in the game? Does, uh, you know, does that fuel you at all? And he said, well, he didn't watch the All-Star game, but he said, of course, that's a motivation for him. And he said that the conversation he had with Spolster during the All-Star break was very helpful. He said he told Spoke, can you please just let me play through mistakes? I think the one thing that had bothered Hassan and friends of Hassan have mentioned this as well is the fact that Spolster had a quick trigger with him, perhaps more so than with other players. I mentioned Whiteside earlier only in the context of I think he is the likely fifth player that you'd want to play late in games with Gorn and Josh Richardson and Olenek and Dwayne, but only on nights that he's engaged. If he's not playing at a high level, then I think you have to look at other options, whether it's going small with Ellington or perhaps uh, Bam Adebayo's having a good game. So ideally, yes, you would like Hassan on the court late in games, but you can't always go 
go into matchups thinking that that's going to be the case if the other team's playing small or if Hassan is just off on a particular night. But I think we had seen a more engaged white side, certainly since the All-Star break until the point of him getting hurt in the last week and a half. And I'd make this one other point, too, about playoff matchups. I'd be very encouraged by how the Heat played against Toronto there this year. Obviously, the Raptors have been terrific at home. The Heat won once there. They gave them a very competitive game and led for a good deal of the first half in their second game there. So I would think whether it's Toronto or Boston, I would be surprised if the series doesn't go at least six. All right, let's move to the Dolphins now. Obviously, it's hard for you, Barry, in the context of what you're doing, where you're just kind of reporting on, on day-to-day things and, and trying to sort of get the near picture locked down and trying to figure everything out. But to me, the big question surrounding them at the moment is, what's their big-picture plan? What is their future meant to look like? Who are they trying to build around? Who are their next group of stars? Because that, for me, is kind of... I was, I was kind of talking through some of it with Omar Kelly today on radio, And he had kind of mentioned the idea of going two for one, right? Where for the price of one Jarvis Landry, you get two Albert Wilson and Danny Amendola. For the price of one Sue, you get one Robert Quinn and maybe another defensive lineman. So with that kind of concept in mind of maybe trying to make the middle of the roster better, I just don't see any standout talent. So how for you are they actually trying to go forward with their future? You know, it's amazing. Even after getting rid of three of their arguably four best players, maybe even three, their three best players, they're still in a predicament where they have only about $9 million in cap space to upgrade. Now they're going to get an additional $17 million when Sue comes off their books in June. So we're not going to see high-end talent through free agency this offseason, possibly not next offseason as well. So I think you're looking at the draft, and this team's success rate has to be considerably higher than it's been. It's funny. They've had success mid-rounds. They've drafted several quality players in the fifth round, from Ajayi to Tony Lippett to Rashad Jones in prior regimes. Where much of their difficulty has come is the second round. And I know this will be very dejecting to Dolphins fans, but you look at their best second and third round picks from the years 2012 through 2015. Guys who should be with the Dolphins in their prime now, they're all gone. Lamar Miller, Olivier Vernon, now Jarvis Landry. And you could make the case, if you look at each decision individually, guys, that it could be justified. I could understand them not paying $26 million to Lamar Miller, not giving $52 million guaranteed to Vernon not giving Landry the $15 million a year that he wanted, including $50 million guaranteed. So individually, you can justify each decision. Collectively, though, that's not a blueprint to build a successful team. Of, of most of your second and third rounders not being good, and you finally find ones that are good, and you let them go after the rookie contract. Uh, with what they've done this offseason, I had no issue with the Landry move because uh, for a slot receiver, I do think $15, $16 million a year is probably beyond what you should be paying at that position. And even though I have high regard for Landry, he wasn't, uh, I think, what you would call a game changer. Uh, he did get in the end zone more last year, but uh, it's hard to overlook the 8.8 yards per catch, even though that was partly a byproduct of some of the routes that he ran. So I had no issue with that. No issue with the pouncy move, because you were able to use that money to upgrade at guard with Josh Sitton and add a center of similar quality in Daniel Kilgore, probably not the pass protector that Pouncey is, but certainly every bit as good, if not better, as a run blocker. The issue that I had was replacing Sue or removing Sue from the roster because this team, even with him, obviously was only mediocre against the run after being well below average against the run its first two years. So I don't know how they replace 
the 877 snaps and the high-quality play they got, and I'm mystified why they did not more aggressively pursue a contract restructure and keeping him. And again, it's not like they're going to get that cap windfall now when free agents are available. They're going to have to wait until June 1st to get that money. So essentially, the Sioux money this year will be used toward paying your draft class, putting together a practice squad, and having some leftover money to spend in free agency should anyone become available in June, July, or August like, God forbid, Jay Cutler, right? <laughs> you, you know, if, if, if there's someone like that who they feel a need for because of injury over the summer. So that's not really a lot to get in exchange for not having one of the league's best defensive tackles this season. So that really is the only move that I question as far as the three high-level players they've gotten rid of. I guess if there was a second move I would question this offseason, it was spending nearly all of Landry's cap allocation on two receivers. I thought that was a little bit of overlap with Amendola and with Albert Wilson. I would have far preferred them to use that money on a receiver or a tight end, you know, or a combination of a receiver or a linebacker. I know a lot of people are panicked now because they have clear holes at defensive tackle and linebacker. They clearly need a third starter at linebacker with Alonzo and McMillan. They need another rotational defensive tackle with Godshow and Phillips. I can understand the Dolphins' perspective in not spending a lot of money at those positions yet just because it's quite possible you could fill either hole. In fact, I would even say it's likely you could fill either hole with a better, cheaper player at 11 in the draft and possibly in the second round. So I understand the thinking there, even though I know it's a little bit nerve-wracking for Dolphins fans to see all of these linebackers and defensive tackles come off the board with Miami having no clear-cut third linebacker and having no clear-cut third or second defensive tackle. Barry, to me, the biggest story of this offseason is that they've recommitted to Ryan Tannehill. We've talked about all these moves, Landry and Sue and, and all that. But uh, to me, the restructure of, of Tannehill's contract is kind of an admission that, that you were not going to get one of these high-end quarterbacks in the draft. And, and so to a certain degree now, Adam Gase is tying his future. Mike Tannenbaum is tying his future. And, and I, I would think that Tannenbaum's future would be more tenuous than Gase's at this point. But both of them are tying their future to a guy who has not played since what what were we going back to like november or december of 2016 right um right, uh, you know arizona game right and, and and has not been um you know a guy that has become an elite player at this stage i mean he, he was having you know you could argue his best season when he got hurt and they were eight and five you know i thought the direction they might go this offseason was you know let the Tannehill contract play itself out Make sure you get a quarterback. Do whatever it takes, which appears the Bills are doing. We've seen, you know, teams move up into that space. You know, with, with the trade that the Colts made to get out of that pick. That maybe the Dolphins would would make a move to get a rookie quarterback and, and essentially buy Gase more time because uh, you know the clock would kind of restart when you get that rookie quarterback. How do you evaluate what they're doing and, and are going to do with the quarterback position? Well, I think for the first time, they would like to genuinely find a backup, a, a legitimate number two in the draft. And, of course, they could say they've tried that in the past, but clearly with a Brandon Dowdy or someone in the seventh round, you're not getting a backup quarterback immediately. You're getting more of a developmental practice squad player. It's amazing to me, and, and you guys have been around for a lot of Dolphins regimes. Every year we hear the line, we need to draft a quarterback every year. Ideally, we'd like to do it. Do you know how many quarterbacks they've drafted this century? Six. And two of them were Dowdy and Josh Heupel. Another was Pat White, who was a quintessential bust. John Beck, who is quintessential bust 
1A. So, then, uh, uh, then you know, it's been those yeah. four plus Ryan. And, and plus Ryan and Chad Henney. So that's the extent of the Dolphins drafting of quarterbacks. So I would think they would look to find someone second, third, fourth round who could step in and challenge Davis Bales for the backup job, certainly beyond the roster and quite possibly be number two going into the season. That could be a Mike White from Western Kentucky, a Luke Falk from Washington State. So I would be looking at those names because, as you guys know, it's looking increasingly unlikely that one of the top four will be there at 11. As far as the commitment to Tannehill, you raise a good point about how the restructuring clearly shows that they're committed to him. I think if you look at the glass half full view with Tannehill, you have to remember that before the injury, he had risen to 12th in the league in passer rating. And I know that number can be overstated, you know, and should not be used as a barometer of how good a quarterback is. But that's above average. And his play during the winning streak clearly had been above average for an NFL quarterback. So I think that is the vision, the memory the Dolphins have latched onto, and they've convinced themselves that this can be a player who can be, if not certainly an elite NFL quarterback, certainly in that second tier behind the elite quarterbacks. Now, whether that comes to fruition for him at 30 remains to be seen. I guess we'll find out this year, barring another knee injury. All right, we'll talk more about the Dolphins later on in the week with your Herald colleague, Adam Beasley. So if you want to check out some more Dolphins talk, that is still to come later in the week. Want to move to the University of Miami now because the football team opened spring practice today. I'm not sure if you made it down to the Gables, but I'm, I'm sure you did. You're everywhere. So, Barry, in terms of the quarterbacking battle and the way that that's going to play out, I feel like that's no doubt the biggest talking point ahead of the season because there's a lot of UM fans that might have thought we might have won that ACC champion, or we might have competed better in the ACC championship game, and we might have won the bowl game if not for what we had at quarterback, maybe even win that Pittsburgh game too. I feel like a lot of perhaps the shortcomings of this UM team were pinned on the quarterback. First off, do you agree with that assessment, and do you think that the end of spring practice and fall practice will reveal a quarterback change for UM in 2018? I do agree that a lot of their difficulties the last three games were clearly tied to quarterback play. Rozier during those last three, 40 for 88 in the losses to Pittsburgh, Clemson, and Wisconsin. Three touchdowns, five picks. Finished the year in the bottom 20 in major college football in completion percentage. I asked him today where specifically have coaches told you you must improve, and he pointed to two reasons, or two factors, rather. He said one was obviously he must have a higher completion percentage. He said if he throws the ball in areas where receivers can catch them, then he said it's the receiver's responsibility to make the plays. But he says if I don't do that, clearly I'm at fault and something has to change. He said he went back to Mobile during the offseason, worked with a quarterback coach who he knows and believes he's made some tweaks that are going to improve his mechanics. The, the other thing he mentioned, which I thought was interesting, was he said that at times he didn't have the urgency he needed. We can all recall last year instances where UM had to call a timeout at inopportune times, squander timeouts early in the third quarter. And this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, 
flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And he almost admitted that at times there was lack of concentration. In fact, his offensive coordinator, Thomas Brown, said today there was lack of focus in certain instances with Malik. So he said that's something he has to correct. It's been interesting, guys, how Mark Richt has framed the quarterback battle. He has said this is not an open competition in the traditional perception of that. He said the job is Malik's. Obviously, we're going to look at the other players, and they'll have a fair shot. But he said if Malik can improve his shortcomings, he is probably going to remain the quarterback. And I think that's the right thing for Rick to say, whether he means it or not, just because I think you have to show some level of respect to your senior quarterback who did guide the team to 10 wins last year. And as Rick and Thomas Brown have said, if you look at merely Malik Rozier's highlight tape from last year, it's as good as any quarterback in the country. If you look at the bombs to Jeff Thomas, and some of the big plays he made to Braxton Berrios. When he was good, he was very good, and he gave you an element of mobility that you need today in major college football with the way the quarterback position is played. It's merely a case of of getting rid of the mistakes, being more consistent. Those obviously are two big ifs, and we're not sure if his ceiling will allow him to do it. My guess ultimately is that we will see Malik behind center for the LSU opener in Arlington, Texas, Labor Day weekend, but... I would not bet the bank on it, and I could easily see Nikosi Perry replacing him early in the season if he struggles. We simply don't have enough body of work with Nikosi Perry yet to know how good he's going to be. I know in the eyes of UM fans, guys, he's taken on this Paul Bunyan-esque uh, you know, type, yeah. <laughs> type person because uh, we, we've, we've heard for you know, going on two years now about how good this guy is, what incredible athlete he is. He can run, he can throw, he's got an arm that can loft the ball 60 yards in the air, but we actually, we actually have not seen it in any game. So I'd like to actually see these skills displayed in a game and I'd like to see him be able to change calls at the line of scrimmage and show that he can actually operate a major college offense, not suggesting that he can't, merely saying we have not seen evidence of that yet. But I do agree with your premise that quarterback play has to improve substantially if they're going to take the step from top 20 program to a legitimate top 5 caliber program.
Does this team, Barry, have, have a chance? Uh, let's say Lorenzo Lingard is as advertised, and I know you've done some reporting about how impressed uh, his, his teammates are with him. And additionally, having Travis Homer coming back and what he did filling in for Walton last year, you've got Amon Richards, you hope, is healthy. They've got to replace Berrios, obviously, and, and I think that's going to be a little harder to do than maybe people think, but they've got a lot of options at receiver. Does this have the potential to be one of the better offenses we've seen from UM in a while? It does. If you base it on pedigree and stars, and I know relying on the Rivals.com star system can be an unreliable way of gauging talent, but if you want to use that as a gauge, this should be one of the best collection skill position players UM has had in a long time. Lingard is their highest recruited back in more than a decade. He's the only, he'll be one of only two five-star players on the roster, Lingard and an incoming receiver named Mark Pope. You have two very well-regarded tight ends, probably two of the best five tight ends in this recruiting class, and Will Mallory from upstate in Florida, Brevin Jordan from New Orleans. They will be at least as good as Chris Herndon, probably potentially more over the course of their careers. You have three good running backs. I include Homer and DJ Dallas with Lingard. You have Amon Richards, who as a freshman was a stud receiver, slowed by injuries last year. But I think there are too many physical gifts there for him not to return at some point to what he was as a freshman. You have speed with Jeff Thomas, who's a high-end receiver. Uh, So I think if the quarterback play is pretty good, this offense should produce more than last year, even with the loss of Mark Walton, who obviously missed most of the season, and Chris Herndon, who was a solid tight end. I still think with Amon Richards returning to health, this offense should be better. My concern with this roster, guys, is defensive line. You have quality players there, but the depth has been hurt badly by the early departures of Kendrick Norton and Richard McIntosh to the NFL, Chad Thomas moving on. Deontay Johnson, a highly regarded kid from Sacramento, transferred to Oregon this summer. So you have four quality defensive ends on the roster, and you have three defensive tackles who could be really good. But if you have injuries to any of them, you are going to be in major problems. So I think that is one concern. My other concern is their young corners have to play well because they lost Malik Young to that devastating career-ending neck injury. So you have three veteran corners back and Trajan Bandy and Michael Jackson being the top uh, two of that group, Javante Dean, a junior college kid who didn't play much last year but was well-regarded coming in. So they're bringing in four young corners, and at least two of them have to be really good because we all know that basically in a major college program, five corners are going to get a lot of playing time. So those would be my two concerns, defensive line depth and the quality play you get at corner, and obviously quarterback, as we talked about, is the big mystery. I do think on the defensive line front, too, losing Craig Kuligowski to Alabama is going to end up being a big blow because he could just you know produce another defensive lineman. They just constantly were turning them out, and then he goes to Alabama, so you kind of lose that advantage a little bit. And the other thing, too, that I'm curious to see is how the quarterback situation plays out in front of the home fans because the first game at Hard Rock is the, is the Savannah State game. There's going to be people clamoring to see Perry at that game. Then the FIU game as well, I imagine, if, if the Canes go up big. So to me, how the fans interact with the quarterback position over the next few months is curious. Now let's move on to the Marlins because Barry you've done a ton of reporting on Derek Jeter and Project Wolverine and all the things that have been going on there. So I guess 
looking at the Marlins from an on-field point of view, you'd have to imagine just based off of the Las Vegas projections that you're staring down the barrel of a, of a 100-loss season. So what is there to be gained from a Marlins point of view? Do you think there will be more teardown? Do you think we see the departures of Ramuto or Justin Bohr? Do you think that there'll be real development of young players? Or do you think that the Marlins are in for a three-year cycle like the Astros did where they never won, I don't think, more than 65 games in a three-year period? Yeah, it, it's funny, Chris, because I asked Jim Bowden, a longtime general manager of the Nationals, now obviously a broadcaster, I said, how long could this process take? I said, are we talking about a three- or four-year rebuilding cycle until they're competitive? And he said it's more like seven or eight years, which I was stunned by, but he thought this team isn't going to be competitive until 2023 wow. or 24. I talked to a longtime <laughs> scout this week who said he thought it was going to happen a lot sooner than that. He's been encouraged by what he's seen from Lewis Brinson this offseason, from the pitcher Sandy Alcantara. Tara, who was sent down today. So this longtime scout who's seen the Marlins a lot this spring thought that they would be competitive, if not for a playoff berth, and certainly 500 caliber team by 2020. With Real Muto, he's the one guy I think they would actually like to keep long term. I know they've talked internally about a contract extension for him. I don't think he'd be amenable to it yet. But I think if this team shows it's on the right track over the next couple of years, I would expect that they would go to him at some point during that time frame and ask him about his interest in a contract extension. Uh, with Bohr, it remains to be seen. He's going to get more expensive over the next two years, still under team control for several more years. Uh, obviously, they'd love to uh, dump the Martin Prado contract, which pays him $13.5 million this year, $15 million next year. But it's an untradeable deal at the moment because he's coming off knee problems last year. He's not going to be ready for opening day. And the one thing I don't blame the Jeter Group for is the fact that they inherited some bad contracts and also some bad luck. You look at the $95 million payroll, potentially – 47 million of that, or actually 46 million, will be on players who will not be on the field for them unless Wei and Chen should suddenly find a solution for his elbow problems. It's funny with him because they, they think surgery is not the solution, but yet he's unable to pitch. So I'm not sure what's going to happen there. I, I know they're optimistic he'll pitch at some point, but not by opening day. So they're paying him $18 million this year. They're paying Edison Volk has $13 million. He, of course, will miss the year with Tommy John. He's not even on the roster anymore. So that's $31 million. And if Prado is unable to play until May or beyond, then that's another $14 million. So we're looking potentially at $46 million of their $96 million payroll not being on the field. So you certainly cannot blame Jeter and Sherman for that. My big concern with this roster, and obviously there are a ton of them, I think the starting rotation has the potential to be among the worst we've seen this century. Uh, <laughs> and, and even more so if Dan Straley's injury today, which does not look to be serious, keeps him out any sort of length of time. You've got Urena and Straley, who for a really good team probably would be a two and a three or a two and a four. They're obviously your top two, and then the rest of their rotation is going to be probably awful. You're looking at a journeyman and Justin Turner. Despania, a guy who, uh, who has had some success as a reliever, throws harder than he did when he was with the Padres earlier in his career. Maybe he'd be competent. Caleb Smith, a lefty they got from the Yankees who was hit hard in two starts for New York last year. He's got decent stuff, but probably more of a swing guy if he had a good team. And Nicolino, who, uh, as you guys recall, was acquired in that Toronto 
Toronto deal many years ago. He needs to be perfect to be successful because he simply doesn't throw hard enough. So you're looking at those four guys to fill out a rotation. That has potential to be an historically bad rotation. I don't say that with any pleasure. I just think if you look at the track records of those four guys, then you know, you're probably going to come to a conclusion that there are going to be a lot of nights where your starter doesn't get you into the fifth inning. Barry, I want to look at this from a big-picture perspective, too, because I mean you've done so much work on the Project Wolverine and the Jeter situation. And as we talk today, this, this Sports Illustrated article uh, came out, this cover story on Giancarlo Stanton. And, and this quote really struck me, where they told Stanton, essentially, that he had two options. Uh, he could either go to the Cardinals or the Giants. And his quote was, uh, in the, way, the quote he relayed to Sports Illustrated was, this is not going to go how you guys think it will go. I'm not going to be forced somewhere on a deadline just because it's convenient for you guys. I've put up with enough here, Derek. I know you don't fully understand where I'm coming from, but Mike, and that's Mike Hill, does. He's been here, and, and he can fill you in. He said, this may not go exactly how I planned, but it's definitely not going to go how you have planned. Here, here's my question on this, Barry. How much, um, I guess it may not matter if they draft and develop players better than the last regime did and then have the resources to keep those players, but how much long-term damage do you think that sort of the way that Jeter has handled things since he's come to Miami, how much long-term damage do you think that that might do and how might that affect the franchise? I think it's going to be considerable, but at the same time, if this group starts winning, fans tend to forget they're outrage, and I think they'll jump on a bandwagon if they have a young team that starts winning in the next two or three years. I had no issue with them tearing it down. I'll tell you what my issues were with the way they've done it. First of all, what I would have done was, because Jeter had a honeymoon period that he completely squandered, I would have instead, if I were Derek Jeter, come in and told South Florida, look, our revenues are simply not what they need to be to be able to maintain a payroll in the 140 to $160 million range. So I want to I challenge South Florida to attend the games next year. I want to ask sponsors to hop on board and join us. And at least then you would have been able to get a true test of whether fans would have come out simply because they'd be so thrilled to have a new owner that's not Jeffrey Loria. So I would have at least given South Florida an opportunity to embrace this team, uh, you know, perhaps trade D. Gordon for a starting pitcher, but certainly don't demolish one of the best outfields in baseball. Uh, and then if it didn't work, if the team was losing or if attendance didn't rise appreciably, then I would have totally understood Jeter tearing down the roster in June or July. But to not even seize on the honeymoon he got, I thought was a big mistake. And then my, my other issue with the way Jeter's handled things is he's consistently said that the reason he tore the roster down is because the approach had not been successful. Hadn't had a winning season this decade, hadn't been to the playoffs since 2003. I think it's disingenuous when he says that because the primary reason for him tearing down the roster is because he assured all of his investors that he would not be coming to them for cash calls to cover losses. So if he wanted to be completely candid with the fan base, that would be reason a. Now, certainly reason 1A is the fact that the, you know, had not been a successful approach the way they had done things. And, and I will say this. I know a lot of fans think if they had signed two pitchers, everything could have been solved. Signing two pitchers would have brought the payroll, at least two high-end pitchers would have brought the payroll this year to over $170 million. And that would have been top seven in payrolls in baseball, which clearly this market cannot afford. So what I would have done would have been flip D. Gordon for a rotation piece, maybe a young pitcher who is ready to join a rotation now, and begun the year 
with last year's outfield and challenged South Florida to respond. And if South Florida didn't respond in terms of increased attendance, in terms of uh, a lot more sponsorship money, then I would have totally understood Jeter dismantling things in June or July. I just can't understand why he did it out of the gate, losing all opportunities for any honeymoon here. All right, we're, we wanted to close with, uh, first off, is there anything else in the South Florida sports scene that has your attention at the moment that uh, you just want to hit on real quick, Barry? Well, I guess, you know, we had hoped that UM would still be involved in March Madness at this point. This looked like it had the potential to be the most exciting UM team in many years. Didn't turn out that way, unfortunately. Now they might lose Lonnie Walker to the NBA. Jim Laranega says he's unsure what he'll do, but it would be difficult to imagine Walker returning next year when most NBA people project him to go in the mid-teens, if not higher. And I think it'll be awfully difficult to hold on to Bruce Brown as well, even though we missed most of the season, certainly most of the ACC schedule with his foot injury. So I wonder now about the future of this program simply because of the FBI cloud, even though they've not been proven to have, uh, to have had any wrongdoing. That cloud remains, and it's certainly affecting the thinking of recruits. They signed no one in the early signing period. So to me, this is a very difficult and potentially dangerous time for the U.M. basketball program, which frankly had done wonderfully under Laranega. But I wonder now if that can continue with a combination of the FBI cloud and some other factors. All right, so now, Ethan, you wanted to run a question by Barry. You ran it past the audience. We got some decent response, so go ahead and introduce it. All right, here's what we did. Um, we've got a new Twitter account, which you should check out, at Five Reasons Pod. We've been posting updates and schedules and, and also some polls here. And one of the polls that I put out yesterday in preparation for, for Barry's visit was this one. Which team wins South Florida's next title? And I basically had to split this into four parts, and, and there were six teams that I wanted to cover. So what we had to do was throw three of the teams on one line. So we've got the Heat... The Dolphins, UM football, those all were separate categories. And then on one line, I put the three others, the, the ones that have less of a following than the other three, the Marlins, the Panthers, and University of Miami basketball. So those were all on the same line. So it could be any of those three teams that would win the next title. It played out a little differently than I expected, Barry, to be honest. I, I honestly thought UM football would win this thing in a landslide, which is simply because they were an undefeated team last year. They looked like they could be headed for the, you know, the final four of, the, of, of college football for a chance to play potentially in a national championship game before, before things fell apart at the end of the season. And I know that there's great trust in Pat Riley down here, but, but we know that the Heat are cap-strapped here going forward for the next couple of years and don't have a clear superstar on their roster. And yet the polling came in this way. It came in 41% for UM football, 38% for the Heat. And this was a pretty decent sample size. We got more than 900 votes. 14% for the Dolphins. I, I think there's just a lot of Dolphin fans that have thrown up their hands at this point uh, about what they're going to do. And then a 7% split between the Marlins, uh, the Panthers, who might have sort of the most advanced young core of any of the teams down here, and UN, UM Hoops, which obviously comes after the basketball team just lost in the first round of the tournament. First thing, I guess, Barry, start here. Does it surprise you that it would be that close? And do you agree that, that it would be UM football or the Heat that has, has the best chance to win the next title down here? I would lean toward those two, although a choice of not in our lifetime also might have, I think, garnered some support. And I might have, I might have gone with that as well, which, which is no, no reflection of my confidence in, in Heat leadership, which has proven over the years to make mostly wise decisions. I agree with the way the poll turned out. I would lean with UM football just because they seem to be closest 
I, I think if you're ranking programs now nationally, you would put some you would put UM somewhere between ten and twenty. So I think that gets you close enough where if they make the right decision on a quarterback, uh, get you know higher quality recruits on the line, you could realistically see them being in the college football playoffs sometime in the next two or three years. So that obviously puts you in the discussion of a national championship. I would say Heat would be second, but for that to happen. Uh, you're clearly going to have to get in the mix for one of the 2019 free agents. I think it's awfully difficult to see them luring a star this offseason being capped out, being up against the tax, but I think if they can somehow emerge from 2019 free agency with Kyrie Irving or with Kawhi Leonard, I guess Kevin Love would be on a second tier there, uh, Clay Thompson would be a possibility, then at least they would be back in the discussion again. But uh, one thing to keep in mind, guys, is you all know for them to even have the cap space in 2019, they would need either Whiteside and Dragic opting out that summer or one of the two plus dumping another contract, whether it's James Johnson, Tyler Johnson, or, and this would be a last resort, Josh Richardson, who they obviously want to keep, but if they have an opportunity to add a superstar like a Kawhi Leonard, he, he would obviously be available at that point. So I would rank the Heat second. Dolphins, I think we can project them to be a Super Bowl contender in 2078. <laughs> uh, Panthers, I would say, would probably be third on my list. And maybe you could even make the case for second ahead of the Heat because of their young core. They clearly have high-end players in Barkoff and Ekblad. I think also because of the unpredictability of the sport, right? Whereas yeah. like, they're, yeah. they're a basic Exactly the same level, but an eight seed can make a run in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Right, exactly. And so much, uh, obviously, as you know, in that sport relies on hot goaltending. The question there is how many more years can Longo play at the level that he's played at over the last month? Dolphins would be would be eighth, even if the list runs only seven. Uh, Marlins would be ninth, even if the list runs seven. And UM basketball, even though uh, this coaching staff has done a terrific job, it's just difficult to see them contending for a national championship unless this uh, this FBI cloud is somehow removed. And and one unfortunate thing is that the FBI will not come out and clear someone who has been uh, implicated in media reports. So I don't know how this cloud goes away. So I would say their chances of a national title in the coming years would be minimal. Uh, so that's how I would rank it. But, guys, do you think we're going to see a championship from any of these teams in the next decade? Uh, I, I don't. I, I, no, I, I, think you, I think you guys are forgetting one that is going to be an instant contender. And it's, uh, and MLS. It's my, Miami He's MLS. For MLS Cup. Throw MLS, out. MLS yep. Cup. We're, 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 we're gunning right. for it. We're going to go and get it. Now, how about the Derek Jeter line that he's beginning with more obstacles than Beckham? I mean, come on. Are you kidding me? Come on. It's been four years. They didn't have a damn team yet. Come on. Right. They don't have a, they don't have a stadium yet. I mean, yeah. now they're moving to Doral, potentially. I mean, so yeah. we don't even know yeah. where they're headed. But but it is it – is I mean, it's a pretty sad state of affairs, though, Barry, on the overall. Because I mean, we, we just did a podcast with Will Manso about how there really aren't any stars in this market. And Chris made the point that the biggest star in this market in, in, in two years could be whoever Beckham recruits to that MLS team. Um, because It could be. Uh, it, and, 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 you know, it's, it's staggering that they have uh, – if you look at the 15 best players in South Florida sports just 15 months ago, strong case could be made that seven of them are gone, right? With Stanton, Yelich, Ozuna, D. Gordon, Landry, Sue. Sue would probably uh, be atop that list right behind Stanton. And then Pouncey, right? Mm -hmm. so, so you could make the case that half of the 15 best players in South Florida sports gone within 16 months. And what other markets have we seen this in recent years? All right, Barry Jackson of the Miami Herald. You read him on Twitter, at FLA Sports Buzz. 
a terrific Twitter follow for anyone who is interested in Miami sports. Of course, you read the coverage at MiamiHerald.com, running through the South Florida sports scene with us. Uh, thank you very much for doing it. You can follow the show on Twitter at Five Reasons Pod, tweeting out polls and links to the shows to find it on the various platforms that we are on. Again, that's uh, Apple Podcast for uh, the Apple people out there. For Android, it is Google Play, also available on apps like Stitcher and Overcast as well. That'll do it for us. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.